0: I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. Devi Lockwood spent five years traveling 20 countries on a mission to document stories around water and climate change. But she didn't want to hear from the big guys like corporations and governments. Instead, she traveled from village to village, often on her bike, with a cardboard sign that simply said, tell me your story about water, or tell me your story about climate change. She collected a thousand and one stories this way from everyday people for whom climate change isn't a political debate, but a daily reality. Debbie Lockwood is an editor and writer. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, Slate, The Washington Post, The Guardian, and more. And her latest book is 1001 Voices on Climate Change. Debbie, thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Thanks for having me, Crystal. It's wonderful to be here.
0: So in some ways, this book, or at least the seed of what became this book, started with the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. Will you tell us that story?
1: Sure. I was a college student at the time, and we were on lockdown for a couple of days. You know, in a post-pandemic world, lockdowns aren't that strange or foreign, but at the time, it was so eerie to be stuck inside. And I realized when I was able to go back outside again, all that I wanted to do was talk to strangers face-to-face and remind myself that not everyone is murderous. So I found a piece of cardboard and um, wrote on that piece of cardboard open call for stories and walked around the city with an audio recorder recording any kinds of stories that people had to share with me. And it was one of the times in my life when I think I felt the most alive. Um, Suddenly the barriers and borders that we have between each other and just people you might pass in a day-to-day interaction um, completely fell away. And people were so eager to share their stories with me. And once I started doing that kind of listening, I found that I really didn't want to stop.
0: Was that something you had ever done before? Or was this just absolutely, you know, the beginning for you?
1: That was the beginning. You know, I was a student of folklore and mythology. That was my Mm -hmm. major. And so I was thinking a lot about the importance of stories and storytelling. But this was the first time that I was out in the world with a piece of cardboard, just listening in that way.
0: You, you write about deep listening, which I love talking to students about because it's a skill that not everybody has. How do you define deep listening?
1: For me, it's listening without the intention to respond. It's being okay with silences, um, because sometimes silence is just the other person thinking. And, you know, I think it's so easy when we have conversations to be thinking immediately about the next thing that we're going to say. But in doing that, it sort of takes away um, that potential for just fully hearing another person. And so I was trying to approach all of these conversations that I had um, with a sense of curiosity, um, but also with a sense of not knowing exactly where the stories that people told me were going to go. And I found that I really loved that. And, and specifically, you know, on bigger issues as the the journey got longer than just that first time out with a piece of cardboard. Um, we don't often take the time to listen to each other about things like water and climate change. And I think that there's a huge need for, deeper conversations on these and other issues that are so intertwined with every aspect of our daily lives
0: do you think that this was a hard skill for you to master
1: oh absolutely (laughs) i listened back to early recordings of myself um, especially on that first bike trip i did down the mississippi river where i was collecting stories and um really inserted myself um, into the conversation and would ask questions just as it was getting good. And when I listened back to myself, that was when the really hard learning happened. And I realized that um, sometimes I just needed to slow down, take a back seat a little bit and let the other person guide. Um, and that's not to say that questions are bad. Questions can be wonderful, um, but it became more about, you know, being present to whatever it was that someone had to share with me and not being afraid of silence.
0: Was this something that people responded to?
1: I would say so. <laughs> um there were so many times you know throughout the the 5 years and a thousand one stories that I was documenting on every inhabited continent, right? There were times when people would say, thank you. Thank you for sharing this story with me. I've never shared it with anyone before or it feels so good to talk about this. And so I think it gets at this really human need that we have to be heard by one another and how all too often there just aren't spaces for connecting really deeply in that way.
0: It was interesting to me as journalists, we're used to going into a community, you're covering a story, you're going to interview, and then you're gone. But this idea of slowing down was very intriguing for me that you decided to do this kind of story collection. It felt a little bit like the Smithsonian collection of stories that they did, you know, way back in the day, because you slowed down, you were walking, you were on a bike. So tell us a little bit about how it evolved in that particular direction, as opposed to just driving from place to place.
1: Sure. I mean, gosh, I just love riding my bike. <laughs> I think it's such a wonderful way to get around. And, and when I'm on the bicycle, there's no windshield wipers between me and the world. It's just this full immersion. And I think another thing that's really special about documenting stories on a bicycle is that um, I wasn't just ending up in the places where everybody else was ending up. Right. I spent a lot of time in the places between places. And. There's so many wonderful stories that need to be told there too. And um, that kind of serendipity of just listening to people um, somehow was more possible on two wheels. It's hard to explain, but um, I felt like I was in the landscape and people who lived in those places were speaking back to me. And I'm just so grateful that they shared with me the gift of those stories because I really do believe each story is a gift.
0: And then you decided to travel the world doing this.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so the first <laughs> the first iteration was walking around Boston with a sign. The second iteration was spending a month one summer going eight hundred miles down the Mississippi River from Memphis, Tennessee, to Venice, Louisiana. And then the third iteration was going all over the world, um, twenty countries, and. <laughs> Um, Not all of that was by bike, but all of it was was with the same intention of being slow. Um, And yeah, I, I changed the cardboard sign. So rather than just saying open call for stories, it said, tell me a story about water on one side and tell me a story about climate change on the other. And people really responded to that.
0: Why that particular focus? You
1: know, it it came from that time I spent in the lower Mississippi River Delta and met a woman named Franny Canetti, who um, lived, I think, about 50 miles south of New Orleans. And I had stopped in front of her office one day to check the air in my bicycle tires. And she opened the door and asked me what I was doing. (laughs) And um, we ended up sharing her lunch that day. And she told me about a hurricane that had swept through her home the year before. And, um, her home was completely washed away as was that of her neighbors. And many people decided to just up and leave the community after that. Um, but she and her husband decided to rebuild, um, rebuild their home on stilts, a small mobile home. And I asked her, (sighs) if she could imagine a time in her life when it wouldn't be possible to live there anymore and she told me not in my lifetime but I think you'll see it and there was something so chilling and sticky about that story sticky in that I just couldn't stop thinking about it once I got back home to the Boston area and as I was re-listening to these stories that I had recorded and and writing through them, I realized that it would be so powerful to hear other examples of how climate change is impacting people's lives, Um, not just in along the banks of the Mississippi River, but in other parts of the world too. And I wondered what it might mean to put those stories in conversation with each other. Um, So I applied for a grant. Um, a whole bunch of grants and got a whole bunch of no's and one yes um, from the Gardner and Shaw postgraduate traveling fellowships from Harvard. And and I was so elated to just be able to try, you know, mm. see, see what I could hear.
0: One of the first places you visited um, was Tuvalu, which is an island nation in the South Pacific. Describe that place for us.
1: It's small, very small. If you're approaching by plane, it feels like you're going to land in the water until the last possible minute when a strip of a runway appears out of nowhere. And um, it's a coral atoll nation, um, which means that there's a you know collect, small collection of islands. Um, the main island is called Funafuti, and uh, about 10,000 people call Tuvalu home. And there used to be a freshwater lens under the island such that people could dig a shallow well and have water for drinking, bathing, anything you might need fresh water for in daily life. But when I was there um, in 2014 into 2015, the people I met told me that the water had become both salty and contaminated in the early 2000s from sea level rise. And so all those wells are now repurposed as trash heaps and all the water for drinking and washing and bathing comes from the rain. And so there used to be thatched roofs, but those are a thing of the past. And now there are um, aluminum or tin roofs and each roof has a kind of pipe attached to a large rainwater tank. And It's not always raining, but um, when those infrequent rains do come, people will leap out of their houses to make sure that the water is going exactly where it's meant to, into the rainwater tanks, because every drop of that water is precious. And I met um, a woman named Angelina there, whose story was so... So powerful to me for a couple of reasons. Um, she's my age. She's a mother of three, and she told me that um, in the last drought that had happened about a year before I was there, her daughter was a newborn, and there were rations of water. So each family would get one bucket of water per person in the morning and one at night, and that meant that she and the older kids were forced to wash themselves in the salty water of the Bay side of the Island. But for her newborn newborn daughter, the salt water gave her the most terrible rash. And she said to me, she said, Debbie, how can I make the decision between having water to bathe my child and water to drink or cook rice? And just really highlighted to me how essential water is for our lives, but also how climate change is jeopardizing this resource. And it's often women who are forced to make these really challenging decisions about how to allocate water in a crisis. Um, and more than that, um Angie told me that her family has been applying repeatedly for what's called the Pacific Access Category Visa. So this is a visa program that the government of New Zealand has set up with Tuvalu and other island nations such that people can apply um, to to leave their home and come. There's a large expat community of Tuvaluans who live in Auckland specifically. And so Angie and her husband and their kids have been applying for this lottery year after year because they don't see their future on the islands. And that was a theme that I heard from many younger Tuvaluans who I spoke with in the month that I was there. But older Tuvaluans told me that they see climate change as an act of God. They couldn't imagine leaving the bones of their ancestors that are buried in the front yard. And... As I heard these stories, I realized too that climate change is a migration issue, right? If we mess with the amount of water that's available in one place, inevitably that's impacting um, people's ability to live in that place. And furthermore, it's prompting migration, not just within the South Pacific, but in other parts of the world as well.
0: It's interesting. There's still some debate um, I use that in air quotes in the United States as to whether or not climate change is a real thing. Do you see that debate reflected in the other parts of the world that you visited?
1: You know, I spoke with a handful of what we might call climate deniers Um And there's some really wonderful research out of the Yale program on climate change communications where they've mapped, um, this is specific to the United States, right? But rather than just saying there's climate change believers and climate change deniers, they have what they call global warming six Americas, right? So on one end of that spectrum, there are people who... Um, recognize the threat of climate change and are making massive changes in their lifestyle in order to accommodate what they see as this great crisis. And on the other side of the spectrum, we have like complete trolls who are often the Mm. loudest voices in the room, but are saying that this doesn't exist. But in between, we have people who are maybe dismissive or doubtful or who just aren't able to engage with the enormity of this issue because it is so scary to think about it, right? But I think it's too simplistic to just say that there's two sides of that coin. Um, but what I heard when I was you know, wearing my, tell me a story about climate change sign in other parts of the world, I remember in, in New Zealand meeting a, a couple named Bill and Julie who were wonderful, so kind to me, so hospitable. I ended up um, in a beach town on a national holiday, a bank holiday, that I didn't even know about. And so all the campgrounds and all the hostels were full, and I had no idea where I was going to spend the night. So I asked this very kind couple if they had any ideas, and they immediately said that I should spend, spend the time with them, which was kind. And we had tea and biscuits, and then they were asking what I was doing. And I said, recording stories about water and climate change around the world. And they said, oh, climate change, right? Um, And they went on to tell me that they were so frustrated with seeing the same images of the same iceberg calving into the ocean on the evening news. And they just thought that this couldn't possibly be real. And someone was in it to make money and as I listened to them, you know, again, getting curious about it because this is a perspective that is important to understand as well. What I really saw was just a a failure of the science communication. And I think oftentimes the words that we use to discuss climate change are really abstract and inaccessible to most people. Um, And furthermore, it's a failure of science education um, that, you know, these topics aren't accessible for many people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that in in the field of communication about climate science specifically we just have a duty to be telling stories about what's happening with climate change not just in terms of parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and not just in terms of you know g- glaciers calving into the ocean or the same image of a polar bear on an iceberg, right? <laughs> Um, But to talk about how this is affecting people's lives right now and to explain complicated and nuanced subjects in a way that is accessible, because this is an issue, unfortunately, that's not going away. And it's only something that we're going to have to continue dealing with throughout not just here in my lifetime, but the lifetimes of the generations behind us.
0: I think for me, that was the most valuable takeaway from this book is that it didn't focus on these giant ideas these were real people dealing with real issues every day things like you don't you don't think about how having to wash your baby in salt water is going to affect your child or there's a situation right now uh, with the mississippi because of the drought in the midwest the mississippi levels are lower and that has allowed this salt water wedge to push back up the river There are communities today in Louisiana, St. Bernard Parish is one of them, Plaquemine, I think, is another, that are so inundated with salt water creeping into their groundwater that the residents there have been using bottled water for everything since June, I think. Wow. But it seems like this is something that most Americans would just be surprised to learn is happening.
1: Yeah, I think it's so easy to think that floods and fires and drought and displacement and, and, you know, problems with salt and the water supply is far away or it's in the future or it's somewhere else. But these are issues that are happening right now. It's happening in the lower Mississippi river Delta as we speak. And I think it's just where listening becomes so important and opening ourselves up to dealing with things that are hard frankly. Um, But I think that, you know, listening isn't just an ending point. Listening can be a stop on the way to co-creating solutions that bring people in rather than push them away.
0: As you traveled the world and collected these stories, was there anything that was really surprising or unexpected for you?
1: One of the stories that I love the most or that has stuck with me the longest over time um, was from a woman I met in New Zealand named Tanea Tangaroa. And she has spent more than two decades restoring a wetland in our hometown of Wanganui um, that had been used as a dump site for trash for years. I think it was a post-World War II Um, dump that was unlined and so it's this you know place that people thought of as toxic and completely unwanted (laughs) but this was right next to um she's indigenous she's maori and this is right next to the place where her community lives and also there's a school nearby and she sometimes with her sister sometimes with other members of the community would just spend time um, honoring that land by hauling out tires and reintroducing native plants and um, doing the slow work. I think sometimes we want fast solutions, right? But slow work. She she showed me how um, over time as she reintroduced these native plants that different bird species were coming back and just the joy that she feels in in watching that happen in this wetland, right? And the wetlands are the lungs <laughs> of our water supply in so many ways. Um, and and not only has she, has she done that re- restoration work, but also on the education side of things, which environmental education is so important, getting kids outside, getting them to understand what the issues are, but also what some kind of small level, but I say small, really, it's a large thing. These local solutions are so massively important. And so she's teaching kids not only about the work that is to be done in that restoration, but also the names of the different plants and animals and the cycles of the seasons. And um, to me, it's just so beautiful because it's slow, it's rooted in place. And it's one woman who is really determined to make a difference in her community. And she did, and she still is now. And the impacts of that action will reverberate, hopefully across generations.
0: Do you think there are places that you visited that will become uninhabitable?
1: I mean, unfortunately, yes. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, in the same breath, there's so much joy in these places. And when I think about somewhere like Tuvalu, you know, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I was just there to document what it was that I saw, but the fact that people of my generation are leaving, I think says something. Um, but there was so much joy there. And I think, I think that, you know, the, the culture of dancing in Tuvalu is so beautiful, for example, or these like really raucous card games and, you know, the way that neighbors really look out for each other. Um, Those types of things are hard to to translate and transfer to another place. And there's a deep sense of loss that comes with that kind of leaving. Or even in, you know, the the Franny who I spoke with in the Lower Mississippi River Delta, right? She couldn't imagine leaving home because it's home. And And at the same time, you know, I think that it's a, a hard reality we have to grapple with. And I don't know that I have an answer that I can see into that future, but I know that people are amazingly resilient and and that there is joy to be found even in the most difficult of circumstances if we just look at it that way
0: maybe one of the first answers is just listening to each other
1: hopefully (laughs) you know i believe in it you believe in it i think there's there's a lot of power in listening and when it's done well um i think it can it can change things for the better
0: well debbie thank you so much for talking with me Thank you.
1: It's been a real joy.
0: 1001 Voices on Climate Change is available now. You can find out more about Devi Lockwood on her website, devi-lockwood.com. Off the Page only exists with the support of people like you. Thank you so much for donating to keep the show going. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a like or a review. It helps get a bigger audience to listen to our stories. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page.